Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you will be with us now as we hear what you've got to say about our lives. Amen. Please take a seat. Who here thinks uh, you've ever got enough time? Uh, you think you've got enough time? Have you got too much time on your hands? Anyone got too much time on their hands? Uh, time, I think, is one of the things that people are most worried about. Uh, we're worried if we've wasted our time, we want to make the most of our time, and we constantly wish that we had more time, more time to complete that project at work or home, uh, more time to finish the exam if we're stuck in the uh, uh, more time to do the renovations. We certainly wish there was more time to enjoy the things that we love, our hobbies, time with the kids, time away from the kids, uh, time catching up with friends. And it's not just... Uh, quantity time we want, we want quality time, we want intimate moments with the ones that we love the most or, or really just concentrated time practising our golf swings or whatever it is we love to do. And yet deep down I think we know that we'll only get quality time if we do the quantity time but we don't seem to have much of either. Most of us are incredibly busy with work, with running around, picking up Timmy from here, dropping Susie off over there, uh, worrying about other people's kids like Julie, she's a teacher, you know, marking exams, uh, helping with homework, cleaning, mowing, fixing. We've got church commitments, we've got appointments, we've got doctor's appointments, uh, and the older you get, the more and more of those you get, right? Um, that's just life as we know it. And so most of us, most of the time, are tired and frustrated. Why is it that we're so frustrated in life? Well, because we choose to spend our time differently if we didn't have any constraints. If you had no boss, no wife, no kids, no grandkids, no deadlines, you probably know exactly what you'd do with your hours and days and weeks and months and years, that exercise or that person or that hobby. And so we, we constantly focus on the future with the dream that there'll be more time when, well, when the next major life marker happens, when the kids leave home, when we retire, when we downsize the house and there's no lawn to mow, when the next thing happens, there'll be some more time, won't there? But from talking with many people at all stages of life, you get to those moments and there's still no time. It's just as busy as ever. In fact, uh, when Peter and Lynn retired, uh, who are part of our 8 o'clock congregation, they said, we can't believe it. This is We're working harder than we ever worked when we were at work. <laughs> it's, and sadly, it's only when we get very, very old and our bodies have fallen apart that there's too much time, too much time on our own, too much time doing nothing, too much time left in our life, and the end couldn't come soon enough. That's a depressing way to end the year, isn't it? <laughs> time matters a great deal to us. But have you considered that time matters a great deal to God as well? Not so much whether he's wasting his own time, but your time matters to God. How you spend it, how you balance it. As a, as a church, our time together matters to God, not just in the services, but how we, we function and operate in our community. Uh, what we seek to do together, what we seek to achieve. Uh, the time in which we live matters to God. The age we're in, the stage of history that we're up to, where we fit into the great scheme of things. And so over January, we're going to be thinking about all those issues and more from, from God's 
point of view. Big issues like how do you know if you've wasted your life? How would, how would you evaluate that? Um, does my life matter to God? Does what I fill the days with matter to God? How much time do we have left? Uh, deep questions, ultimate kinds of questions. But we're also going to deal with the nitty-gritty of day-to-day issues. What's, what's a good use of my time today? What should my, my plans start to look like? Short-term, medium-term, long-term? How might our moments be spent? How can I make the most of them? And I certainly hope that by the end of it, you won't walk away thinking you've wasted your time being here in the summer heat, uh, especially if you ever back up at night church when it's like 40 degrees in this building and we've got those fans blowing hot air down from the roof. That's really hard going uh, for the people at night church. You might want to pray for them for more ice blocks during the evening service. And to kick the series off, I want to take us to this incredible part of the Bible which deals in great deal tie with the issue of time, particularly in relation to meaning and purpose uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Uh, it was written by someone calling himself the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And it might well have been King Solomon, who was the greatest, richest, most prosperous of all the kings of Israel who lived in about 1000 BC. Uh, there's lots in the book to say it was him, but he never actually says it was Solomon. So it could have been some years later, a writer writing more or less through Solomon's eyes. I'm just going to call him Solomon. And he begins in verse 2 of chapter 1 with how life appears when you, you stop and you say, well, let's, let's evaluate it all. How does life look? Verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> what does he mean by meaningless? Well, it's the Hebrew word hevel. Um, 38 times he uses it through the book. It's meaningless. Uh, but what it means is, is breath or vapour. Something that's there and then it's gone. It's like in winter when you go for a walk in the cold and uh, you see the breath pouring out of your mouth and then it just vanishes you see it for a second and then it's gone that that's what hevel means it means vapor it's transitory it's insubstantial Uh, sometimes the bible uses the word about things that are worthless or trivial Uh, the greeks translated it futility Uh, so you could have said futility futility everything is futile um uh and, and what he's saying is that when you stop and look, just about everything is totally and utterly meaningless. It's all vapour. Uh, it's a mist. It's pointless. It's futile. And he sets out for 12 chapters to prove it, to look at life and how it is that people fill their time and how we fill our time to try and find some meaning and purpose. And the conclusion he comes to over and over again is that life is transitory. Life is pointless. Life is vapour. It's meaningless. And what he does is ask a particular question a number of times through the book. You see the same question coming up again and again and again. The first time it happens is in chapter 1 and verse 3. You see it there? What does a man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? What's the profit What's the bottom line? What's, what's left over once we've done all these things? 
for all our busyness, all our work, for all our labouring and being tired, we rush around, we, we uh, fill our time and we wish there was more, we go to bed tired, we wake up tired and we do that day after day, year after year. What does it all amount to? That's the question he's asking. And he starts by, by looking at the world around us. What is planet Earth like and what does it teach us about life? And so chapter 1 and verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. And I think the point being that we're so insignificant in terms of time. We're just here for a moment in the history of the world and then we're gone. You ever climbed up Centrepoint Tower? I proposed to Alison up Centrepoint Tower in the fancy restaurant. Uh, but you're up there gazing into each other's eyes and then you look down at the city and there's people that look like ants just kind of going around and it's, it's that sort of sense of perspective. Everything just looks so small and insignificant and in the great vast universe, what, what's a human life? And he looks further and he says, well, nothing ever seems to get achieved. Verse 7, all streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. It's kind of like a cosmic painting of the Harbour Bridge. Uh, you know, They start at one end and they start painting and they work the other way to stop the rust. But by the time they've got to the other pylon, the front end started rusting again because it's taken them so long. And so they've got to go back over there and start again. And it's, it's, it's never finished. And that makes it all seem fairly futile. So verse 8, all things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. And I think he's saying you can get bored with anything. And yet at the same time, we're never satisfied. The luster rubs off everything. You've got all your shiny new Christmas presents. Anyone get something really good for Christmas? Uh, anyone broken that thing already? I mean, the kids have. They, uh, Sarah wrecked her present within about two, two minutes. There you go. Buster gone in the bin, right? But, but that happens with everything. The luster just rubs off, whether it's your new car, and then a couple of years later, you're like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's a lemon. <laughs> whether it's the TV and it's not big enough anymore, even though it was the biggest one when you got it. Um, even roller coasters, they're exciting the first time, and then you've got to queue for an hour again to get on. And you're like, oh, is there something better? Is there a bigger one for more excitement? Even relationships. Uh, you go into marriage and, uh, uh, and it seems so exciting and then the luster rubs off as reality sits in. Well, uh, and while your love may well deepen over time, you're not going to have the same palpitating heart every time the other person walks in the room, right? You're going, oh, there she is. Oh, it's so exciting. <laughs> Anyone have that experience still? I mean, you might be able to teach us the secrets. if I, you know. um, He's saying it doesn't matter what you do, it will become tedious. Uh, a friend of mine quit one job. He was a, a policeman. He said, I, I just love cooking. I want to be a chef. And so he resigned and became an apprentice chef. And he's like, I'm, you know what, six months later, I'm going back to the police force. I used to enjoy doing this thing as a hobby, and now it's just oh, awful. And so you think you'll find fulfilment in the next thing, in the next thing, in the next thing, but then you have your midlife crisis. And, then, you know, and so here's his conclusion, verse 9. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And it's been the same over and over again. In world affairs, nations rise, nations fall. In national affairs, the economy's up, then the economy's down. Labor's in, then the Liberals turns in, and then back again. In, in our personal lives, we're born, we live and die, just like everyone else has always done. And it only gets worse, verse 11, because no one will remember us. <laughs> there is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Let me chuck some names out at you. Uh, John Watson. George Reed, Andrew Fisher, Joseph Cook. Uh, I know Aaron's probably going to know who they were. Maybe Kevin. Uh, but who were they? And I'm not talking Andrew Fishtail Fisher, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the race car driver. They're just Australian prime ministers, uh, top job in the country, and no one remembers them, except the weird ones. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know them either. I had to Google them. But, but you say they were just politicians. Our family, they, they'll remember us. Really? Do you remember your family? Your, your, maybe your grandparents. Maybe you barely remember your great-grandparents, but I'm pretty sure you never met your great-great-grandparents. And you know, the people who are kind of first fleeter families, they'll say, oh, you know, you know great-great-grandma stole a loaf of bread and came out. But... You know, it's one historical fact and it's, you don't know them. They, they must have existed, the people before them, but we want to make our marks on the world, but do you think anyone's going to remember or care in years to come? And that's just his warm-up. <laughs> Pretty depressing stuff. And, and, and no wonder in a world like that where time just rolls on and on that people try and search for meaning and purpose anywhere and everywhere. And, and that's what Solomon goes on to talk about, how it is that he tried to fill his life, how he tried to fill his days with something, anything, to distract himself from the depressing monotony and to try and find meaning and purpose somewhere. And he tried everything. First thing he tried, philosophy, study and wisdom. Maybe that's not where your eyes start in education, but he thought he'd have the go at that. So verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that's done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And I think he's saying that some things, if you study as hard as you can, think as hard and as deeply as you can, that just don't make sense. The world sometimes just doesn't make sense. Try as you might to fully comprehend everything about life of the world, and things just don't add up. Um, do you know who said, I always knew there was something fundamentally wrong with the universe? Anyone know that one? Uh, it's Arthur Dent in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He's just met this uh, seven million year old supercomputer that was programmed to answer the question to life, the universe and everything. And after seven million years of clocking it over, it spits out the answer. 
42. That's the answer to life, the universe and everything. And they go, well, okay, if that's the answer, what's the real question? And so they program it again. Seven million years later, they turn up to what is the question to which the answer of life of the universe is 42. What's the, what's the real question? And the question the computer comes up with is, what is six times nine? The answer to that is not 42, right? At which point Arthur Dent says, I always knew there was something fundamentally wrong with the universe. It just doesn't add up. And it captures in a funny way what Solomon's saying. You just can't figure it all out. There's some things we can't understand or fix. So why is it with all our technology and with all our advancements, why is it we just can't get rid of greed and selfishness and violence? Why is it that we can't run efficient programs or governments and bureaucracy that just bogs everything down? Why is it with all the wealth that the Western world has, it's the wealthiest and most educated parts that have the highest suicide rates? So wisdom, learning turned out to be empty. It's just a vapour. So Solomon thinks, well, maybe the meaning of life is to be found in something else. And so chapter 2 and verse 1, he said, I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with, well, not wisdom this time, but with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? Pleasure he tries, but he says that turns out to be meaningless too. Now, he's not saying it's bad. He's not saying any of these things are bad. He's not saying don't ever have any fun. See, if you understand the meaningless idea, what he's saying is it, it's just, it's vapour, it's there and then it's gone. And he says that's what, that's what pleasure's like. It's, it's instantaneous and it's nice, but, but it disappears. You know, and so he tried alcohol, chapter 2 and verse 3. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. And so drinking and partying hard. But have you noticed that most people grow out of them? Because they just get to a point where they realise it's stupid that they've had enough of the hangovers and the fights and the embarrassment and the accidents and the waking up and you're not quite sure how you got here and why is that person lying beside me and the failing liver and health problems. And, and so meaning and purpose of life aren't found in hard living. Well, so maybe it's in art and building and making something beautiful to enjoy and for the world to see. So verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built for myself uh, houses and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made, that's kind of Allison's dream, right? <laughs> I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of a heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. That is, whatever you want, he had. He spent 13 years building his dream palace 
in the middle of a forest. Oh, how lovely. He had women, more women than uh, he could ever want. Uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand women. That's three birthdays every day, you've got to remember. <laughs> he had more to spend on his pleasures and toys than you ever will. And buildings and, and what happens when he looks over it all? He surveys his vast accumulation, verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained. There was no bottom line. There was no profit at the end of it. Meaningless. And the same he goes, he says, for having a great harem with sex on demand, uh, for hoarding money, for politics. Same result. Nothing in the end provides a bottom line, a profit or a meaning. That's not to say, and he's not saying this, he's not to say that there are not some things that are, are better than other things. There's better and there's worse. Uh, and he's going to go on and talk about a lot of those things. So he says, wisdom is better than folly. Um, uh, it's better to have a job with an income than to have nothing to eat. Like there's better and worse. Uh, and there's also a right and wrong time to do the things that we've got to do in life. He says in chapter 3, there's a time to plant and there's a time to uproot. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. That is, you've got to understand what the time is to know what to do at the time and to make the best use of it. You know, you've got to pick the fruit when it's ripe uh, or it'll just rot and you'll starve. It's the wrong time to crack jokes in the middle of a funeral. <laughs> uh, you've got to understand the right time for things and that's incredibly important. But in the end, when you weigh it all up, nothing can deliver a bottom line, true meaning and purpose in this world. And why is that? Well, his answer is, because we all die. 15, verse 15 of chapter 3, Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What do I gain by being wise? I asked in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Everyone dies. And everything they've lived for and worked for, sunk their time and energy and effort into to give them meaning and purpose, it all, it all dies with them. And that's just how this world is. That, that's how life is in this world. And if all you have is just a transitory life in this great endless monotony of time and you fire for a little while and then it's all dead and gone and nothing's ever changed, it's, it's all just a bit futile. But here's the thing. Why does that feel wrong? Why can't we just say, yep, well, that's the way it is. Let's get on and watch some cricket and distract ourselves. Uh, why do we think it can't be like that? It shouldn't be like that. Why do we say there's got to be more? There's got to be more to life. Why has every society in human history tried to find meaning and purpose? And the answer is, because it's hardwired into us. Because our creator made us to know him, made us to relate to him and, and to have meaning and purpose through that relationship. That feeling of frustration and futility and emptiness, it's actually the heavy hand of God 
on our world. And he talks about that in chapter 3 and verse 9. He says, what does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden that God has laid on men. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there's nothing better than for uh, men to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. That's a gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. And God does it so that men or people will revere him. The reason that we feel this futility about life, this pointlessness in the face of death, the reason we feel there has to be more to life is because God is there and God has built it into us. God who is eternal, God who goes beyond the time of this universe with its seemingly endless monotony of suns coming up and suns going down. God who made it all and who is good. He he is wonderful and he's the one who who imbues everything with meaning and purpose. But despite that, there are three horrible realities that we've all got to come to grips with. And that's really what I think Solomon's pointing out. Horrible reality number one is that we struggle with the meaninglessness of it all because we live in a world uh, with the people of this world who who are blind to God and blind to the, the ultimate reality, the eternal reality. And that's why if you look at the world like Solomon does for the great majority of this book, looking without any reference to God, there is no meaning, there's no purpose. There's just living for the moment and doing what your hand finds to do and then dying and being remembered no more. That's the first horrible reality. Uh, People look without reference to God. Horrible reality too is death. Death, which which is the thing that makes it all so meaningless because it brings everything to an end. Is, is actually a judgment on us from God. Horrible reality number three is that there's an even greater judgment to come after death where everything will be weighed up and it will be determined what its meaning and values. And our meaning, every idle word, every idle thought, everything we did. But let me just pull some things together in the face of those horrible realities. Draw out some implications for now. Number one, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the things of this world. It's not wrong to enjoy the holidays or to enjoy Christmas parties and presents. It's not wrong to have fun and play golf or, or dare I say, play board games. Uh, it's not wrong to be married and to enjoy your family. It's, in fact, it's good and right and proper a lot of time. You've got to remember two things, though, in the face of all that. One, there's a right time to do them and there's a wrong time. Uh, and B, our time in this world is limited, so you've got to use it wisely. Second implication is about death. Death, which is the thing that makes everything so futile and meaningless, death is God's judgment. See, it's no accident that death is in the world. And it's all tied up with sin because the reality is that we are at war with God. And it's a war we cannot win and we will not ever win. Uh, We saw it in Genesis just a few weeks ago when Adam was warned not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. Don't eat it on pain of death. The day you eat it, you're going to die. It was a dire warning. But the lies of the devil convinced the woman and the man to eat the fruit 
the lies which question God's word. Did God really tell you not to? The lies which question God's goodness and concern. God's just holding out on you. He's jealous. He knows you'll benefit from it. Lies which played on their pride. Eat it and you'll be like God. Knowing good and evil, you get to determine your own destiny and what's right and wrong for you. And it was so attractive to Adam and it was so attractive to Eve and it's so attractive to all of us who who want to make up our own rules. And it's no wonder that in seizing power and trying to become the determiners of our own destiny that we try and invest the things of this world and this life um, uh, with ultimate meaning and purpose, seeking in things that we can see and taste and touch, work and family and cars and travel and sex, because we so easily block out of our minds the one who made the universe and who therefore determines meaning and purpose. But if you invest the things of this life and this world with ultimate meaning and purpose, it's always going to lead to despair and futility because they're all transitory. So three, third implication. What we need, therefore, is someone who can defeat death, who can get us through the judgment, who can give us something that lasts eternally if there's to be true meaning and purpose. And the good news is that that someone has come. In fact, we've just been celebrating it, hasn't we, <laughs> with Christmas. We're not going to be able to find that meaning and ourselves and solve the problems, but Jesus has come. Jesus, who is God, become man, who's come to save us, who's come to save us from our sins. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's named Jesus because that means God saves. He's come to save us. He's come to save us from our stupidity. He's come to save us from death. He's defeated death, in fact. And he's come to save us from the judgment by taking our sins upon himself and taking our penalty. It's wonderful news. And we need to come to him. If you want your life to matter, you've got to seek God. In the end, if there's going to be any meaning and purpose in life, meaning and purpose in your life, if there's going to be a bottom line, something that counts, it has to be tied up with God. Knowing him and serving him. Being reconciled to him. There's an eternity beyond this world which we've got to figure out and understand and be sure about and consider deeply. And that is what will truly give your life, our lives together, our church, uh, all our time, meaning and purpose. And knowing that, Knowing him, knowing that will transform what we do with our life, what we do with our days and what we do with our time. But more on that as we continue through the rest of January in the heat. Uh, I'll leave it to Dave to speak on the rest of it. Um, let me leave you with something from 1 Timothy chapter 6, which we concluded with 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's talking about money. But it's equally applicable to everything else that Solomon's mentioned. Command those who are rich in this present world, who are invested in this world, not to be arrogant or put their hope in the things of this world, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. That is God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one can see or has seen, 
To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Father, we thank you that uh, Solomon was able to reflect deeply on life and how this world appears if we uh, take you out of the picture. And so do what we do pray for our world, which is living without you and which is living in hopelessness and futility. Father, we pray that you'll break through the darkness and help the people of this community, the people in this building, the people uh, who we know and love, the people of our city and our country, to see that life is futile without you, the maker, imbuing life with meaning and purpose. We thank you, you're a God of mercy, who has given your son that we might be saved from all that, saved from death and from sin and judgment and saved for a life of joy and meaning and purpose in knowing you, our maker, serving you wholeheartedly and uh, sharing your light and love with the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.